Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, welcome to the podcast. Today, it's my great pleasure to have Stephen Brody as a guest. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Jeremy. I'm excited to be on board. Stephen is the head of sales at Bevy. Bevy is a platform for building and scaling in-person communities. Stephen, you were resistant to actually give me any sort of a formal tagline. Let's talk about that for a second, then I'll ask you my usual two questions to get to know you, but I thought that was interesting. If you don't solve a specific tangible pain for a certain persona, you probably don't actually have go-to-market fit on the one hand. But on the other hand, people are unique. The pain they feel is different. And the challenge that they feel is their number one priority is always going to change. And I feel like aligning a sort of general boiler statement to what your company does often causes you to really miss the mark. Based on who you're talking to and what they're actually trying to do, you should really tailor your approach to really distilling down your value proposition based on that individual human being. That's empathy in and of itself. Marketing leaders could possibly be horrified by that, right? Because they like to have a degree of control over everybody talking about the company in the exact same way. Do you think that's a big company, like an enterprise versus mid-market distinction of giving that degree of autonomy to salespeople on messaging? No, I think great hypergrowth organizations do drive those types of certifications. We did a CIO level narrative certification across the entire company at MuleSoft. And it was really rigorous, really structured, and really hard. It genuinely up-leveled our ability to have conversations with CIOs across the company. What we discovered maybe a year into driving this certification is that everyone was having that type of dialogue with every prospect and customer they were talking to. And the reality is that messaging was specifically tailored to CIOs and what they actually care about. So I believe in the power of certifications, but I also believe they need to be multifaceted and really be adjusted based on the persona of the individual that you're talking to and based on what they actually care about. If you were to explain what you did at SalesLoft to your grandma, you probably wouldn't explain it the same way you would explain it to a VP of revenue operations. With that in mind, like we should both be capable of delivering the right message, but we need to deliver the right message to the right person at the right time. And that necessitates having multiple sort of talk tracks. So we're going to get to know you a little bit better in the way that we always do. The first is if you can share your favorite leadership book of all time and why. My favorite leadership book far and away is Team of Teams by Stanley McChrystal. I'm not just saying that because he used to command Second Ranger Battalion, which is the unit I served in for just shy of six years. He put in place a system and a leadership structure that really empowered small sort of teams of teams to go and execute really high stake missions and do it in a way where by virtue of really having this idea of a shared consciousness where there's maximum transparency and maximum sharing of information and best practices across the organization and a clear sort of idea of what his commander's intent was, like, what do I actually expect from you? He was able to drive this sort of empowered execution. And the thing he talks about that's really interesting about it is when he underwent this endeavor and this sort of organizational shift, he was expecting if I give all this information out and then just trust these people that they understand my intent and they're going to execute, I'm going to get back 70% of what I expect. And the reality is, he sort of put this in place and ended up getting like 110%. So you might have in Ranger Regiment, 
a captain running an entire sort of theater of special operations in a state in Afghanistan that's the size of, I don't know, Arkansas. And you can only really do that when you're decentralizing command and really empowering the leaders underneath you to go and drive impact. Other thing I wanted to ask you, what's your most unusual habit or hobby? And I have a pretty good guess from having met you a couple of times what that is. Yeah. So I've worn a Hawaiian shirt to work every day for now 455 days. It started, truth be told, as a sort of passive aggressive response to the fact that Salesforce was acquiring the last company I was at. I knew they had this idea of like an Ohana culture that was really rooted in Hawaiian culture. And I'm not the type of person who wants to show up to work every day in a Hawaiian shirt. Lo and behold, what started as a bad joke taken in jest has now turned into a great way to really sort of cut the air. And if you read my LinkedIn profile, and you gloss over the part that says, I wear Hawaiian shirts every day, you're probably going to lock onto the fact that I went to war five times, or you're going to see like a six foot three white man. And with that comes a certain set of expectations. And if I show up in the typical tech uniform with a blue blazer and blue button down shirt and Lululemon slacks and Allen Edmonds, probably going to assume I'm a jerk. It's great to be able to drive a sort of pattern interrupt and disrupt that line of thinking and let people actually get a chance to authentically know me because that's what I want to do with them. So you graduated from University of California, Santa Barbara with a poli-sci and government degree and then joined the military and joined the army. I was a really torpy, underdeveloped high school kid, which I think was really great because it humbled me. And when I got into college, I suddenly grew really quick and realized that being 6'3 and 165 pounds, I probably had some filling out to do. And I also found out that if you eat a lot of food and go to the gym, you get bigger, which was an amazingly shocking revelation. Sophomore year, I thought I was taking a 5 a.m. workout class, and it turns out it was actually an Army ROTC class. If you think about it, this is a bunch of 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds who not only are trying to sign up to do the most challenging thing possible, but there's two wars going on, and there's you know an absolute certainty that they're going to go. I ended up getting the sort of commission I wanted to be an infantry officer. And then immediately I got told that they had overslotted all the infantry roles and that I was needs of the army. I was going to be put into a role as an officer where I was basically going to be pushing a desk at 22. For me, that was sort of a fate worse than death. I got lucky because I had these two mentors who were both non-commissioned officers and members of Ranger Regiment. One had been in Mogadishu and is like, there's a character about the guy in Black Hawk Down. And, you know, the other coincidentally was like a sniper section leader in 2nd Ranger Battalion, which coincidentally was the last duty position I held. And what they said to me is, look, if you really want to do what you think you want to do, you can actually decline your commission, enlist with a contract that gives you the right to try out for Ranger Regiment. The rest is sort of history. Can you reflect on some of the experiences that you had and how those related to you then shifting over to head of business development inside of a tech company? The first one, and this is the most important one for any leader, but in particular sales where you've always got to be hiring. Hiring is the biggest inhibitor or enabler of growth in a hyper-growth organization. The thing about special operations that gives them the ability to go and the faith in the sort of command to go and execute the highest risk, most sensitive mission set is that 
they have far and away the hardest selection process possible. When you get kicked out of a special operations unit, you go to the big army. There's nothing against the big army, but that was like a fate worse than death. The common thread between special operations and going to war five times with the best people possible and being a sales leader is density of talent is everything. Creating a high performance organization is only possible when you have the best people possible in seats and an unwavering commitment to not ever lowering the bar, period. Right now, you're head of sales at Bevy, and the talent market does not feel unlimited right now, right? The war for talent is so incredibly extreme. How in a hyper-competitive market do you ensure that you have enough of a pool to draw from and not compromising? I've been very lucky to have worked with and have hired some of the best people possible. There's this weird sort of paradox where if you understand their potential in a way where they don't initially understand it to be, and you really give them the coaching and support and the guidance to get there, they're going to think they owe their career to you. Now, the reality is they would have been wildly successful with that level of support from anyone, although most organizations don't give it to them. So I've been lucky in that a lot of the people that I've worked with have reached out to me. And a lot of what they tend to say is something to the effect of, you were really hard on me and I really valued it because I knew it was coming from a place of caring and you held me to an incredibly high standard because you believe my potential was higher than I really believed it was. And because of that, those people want to work in that environment again, where they have the trust, the autonomy, and frankly, like they reap the financial rewards of that. I don't know how much that scales, but I know what also scales is if I have headcount to hire 10 AEs and I hire four and they all become wildly successful and independently wealthy, well, word's going to get out. It's going to be a lot easier to hire the next six or the next 16. So revenue efficiency is actually a way to drive a stronger recruitment brand. I was just thinking about a conversation I was having with someone the other day. They were really successful as an AE at MuleSoft. They went to another hyper-growth company where they're currently sitting at something like 350% of their number in Q1. And they want to leave. And it's solely a function of the fact that they now have a really high standard for what great leadership looks like. The more success you've had and the further you are along in your career, and the more you realize how little time there is left to make an impact and go to work at a place every day that you love and care about, the less money motivated you are, even under the stereotype of salespeople. You're spending 8, 10, 12 hours a day with people. And if those are not people that you respect and care for and get along with, it's not a good way to spend your days. That's what really, truly great leaders aspire to do. And great salespeople are the same way. Like even when they don't need to work, they love to work and they do it because they're surrounded by the best people possible. And the reality is like almost to the detriment of some of my friends, that's why people end up staying in special operations so long. I had set up a bit of a false dichotomy earlier, which is that you can't be decentralized and also highly efficient with best practice. So can you talk a little bit about how those lessons relate from the military world into the civilian world of building decentralized but empowered teams? In SaaS, this model is sort of the answer to many of the challenges that companies face, whether it's growing their community, whether it's empowering a global sales org to drive effectiveness. And that is they sort of drive a franchise model. Now, if you look at a franchise model, what you're really delivering is a core set of assets and training 
and support, but also frameworks and structure that ensure there's continuity and brand integrity, but you can go and disperse it globally and worldwide. How special operations units operated was essentially each ranger platoon or quote unquote Delta Force troop was sort of a franchise version of like joint special operations command and operated with that kind of autonomy. The maximum sharing of information and best practices that took a rigor around putting in place and measuring adherence to certain standards. And it took having the best people possible. But when you have all those pieces in place, you can drive that sort of franchised or federated model. It's a lot more successful than a hierarchical model, which tends to just drive a ton of bottlenecks and really sort of stymies people's success and happiness and autonomy. I'd like to pull data. And one of the data sets I pulled was success or failure as SDRs who had been hired in from different areas. And I did get the signal through the noise that former military actually had a higher probability of success in sales. It may be kind of obvious why that is, but I'd love for you to, if you, if you believe that's also true, why do you think that is? For me, the skill set that was most critically important. Now, bear in mind, I am a kid from the city of San Francisco. Even after three years on the line in Ranger Regiment, when they told me that I was going to sniper section, at that point, I had never even looked down the scope of a rifle. I had to bring like a true beginner's mindset to what I did. And I think the applicability in sales is because I did that, I was better than all the kids who grew up in Alabama in tree stands shooting deer all the time because they had all these bad habits that they had to unlearn. And what I had to go and really understand is like, how do I focus on core fundamental skills in order to be the best at my job? And I think that probably dictates that people from that kind of background are more successful. They know how to learn and they know how to learn new skill sets. There's one other adage in Ranger Regiment, which is like, always know the job two levels above yours. And that's because literally like half your platoon can get blown up while you're out hitting a target and you need to be able to step up and take charge. And that dictates that you're always focused on growth and progression. And I feel like the best salespeople, whether they're SDRs or strategic field reps, have that sort of mindset. You're saying that the best SDRs and field reps have the mindset of knowing the job two levels above them? Yes, and always focusing on how can they absolutely nail their sort of core fundamental skills. The front of the funnel discovery really sets the pace for the entire sales engagement. And there's all this data that substantiates like, People tend to buy largely based on the sales experience. And that experience starts on that first call. Yet, like the level of enablement and support that a lot of organizations give to SDRs, who are not only like the talent pipeline for their organization, but are literally like the first face and voice that customers see and hear, it's sort of sad. As a person progresses in their whatever it is, 18 to 24 months as an SDR, I found you have to be willing to potentially lower their quota in order to free up time for them to build those other skills, either on the job by shadowing field AEs or inside sellers, or by participating in more formal sales training. Yeah. So, so I take it a step further. What, what I actually personally was tasked with is like building out the full cycle role so that people had a way to have a low risk way to actually bridge from being on the account development team to being a field sales rep. And the reality was one of the challenges initially is 
all right, if they're going full cycle, we understand like, you know, that they're learning the job, but I, as a regional sales director, RVP don't want to take on their quota because I don't want to be, you know, held to the fire when they don't deliver. And on the flip side, we want them to be able to go through this bridge and go through it with this sort of understanding that they might fail. We literally pulled them sort of off the line where they went through this progression of, you know, slowly sort of going through shadowing to actually doing full cycle sales to actually going and closing deals before they ever even were officially field sales reps. And what's amazing is the people who went through that pipeline radically outperformed the people who just sort of did the traditional, hey, let's shadow and, you know, maybe I work a few deals, but there's there's an understanding that I'm going to be in this role. In that other approach, did you actually allow the, I don't know what you were calling them at that point, SDR pluses, I guess, or something like that, to work on deals that were owned by other sales executives? No. So we experimented with corporate sales. And when the acquisition happened, that got kiboshed. So that's more of a model where you're sort of an inside rep to a senior strategic AE. What we actually had them doing was owning a set of accounts and working them from inbound lead to close or going outbound against them. And those tended to be, you know, accounts in open territories or accounts that fell under a certain threshold or the accounts that were in the territory that they were going to step into if they were successful. But we 100% had them working their own accounts. And we had people closing like half million dollar deals while in full cycle roles. It almost like reset the bar for what was even possible and created, dare I say, too much demand for those reps because there was a certain sort of life cycle that each rep had to go through to be ready to even be in the position to be going full cycle and be assessed for a field sales role. Since we're talking about full cycle, it reminds me of a recent LinkedIn post I read. I think it was written by Amy Volas, who's the founder and CEO of Avenue Talent Partners. She asked a question on LinkedIn, which was, do you think that we've over-specialized in sales with SDRs, closers, account managers, non-commercial CSMs? Obviously, it depends on the context of the organization, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether we have over-specialized or not. It's a total cop-out answer, but I believe it depends on the level of maturation of the company, the deal velocity, the deal size, the level of complexity, how many members of a team are involved in selling, like all these different factors. If you're at Yelp, like you probably don't need an SDR to go and find leads because an inside sales rep could close a call on a call. I think that what I will say is there's a time and a place for specialization and there's a time to not have it. The risk with specialization is people don't know how to either do discovery or prospect, and you always need to be doing both in order to be successful as a salesperson. The reality is you could take a generalist and always turn them into a specialist, right? So everyone in Ranger Regiment starts, quote unquote, on the line. So like our mission was to sort of kill and capture high value targets. So we'd go to their houses in the middle of the night, and that's what we do. And being on the line meant you were going in and clearing the house. Being in sniper section meant you were supposed to be the first person on the roof getting eyes in. No one ever went straight into sniper section. People always started on the line. No one ever went straight into one of our specialty units. They always started on the line. And the reality is that gave them the sort of core foundation to build upon. And I think the risk with specialization early on is you don't have that foundation in place. We've talked about a lot of topics. If you wanted to give folks sort of the high-level summary of the most important ones, what would you leave? What would you leave the listeners with? 
outside of what we've talked about, I think the thing that's most interesting for people to think about, and I'd sort of pose it as an intellectual challenge, is interrogate how you buy today versus how you bought in the past. You know, in the past, you might go to a store, you talk to a salesperson, and you ask a few questions, and they give some recommendations, and you go and you buy something. And that's like how we used to buy in the way, I don't know, Jeremy, if you're the same as me, but the way I buy now is I do one of probably three things. I go on Amazon, I know what I want, and I look for five-star reviews that look reasonably priced and credible, and I buy them, whatever that product is. Or I say, hey, Jeremy, I really like that Hawaiian shirt you have. What brand is it? And where did you buy it? And then I buy it. Or I say, hey, Jeremy, you're a Hawaiian shirt guy. What brand do you really like? And then I go and look at that brand and do some exploration myself. And then I buy it. And by the way, like that's how modern B2B buyers buy. And the reality is what's happening is they're spending less and less time with you as a salesperson and more time both doing research online and meeting with your customers, oftentimes face-to-face and asking for their assessment of what they should buy. I know you had Pete on the podcast who runs Modern Sales Pros. It's crazy. You go to Modern Sales Pros, you learn a ton. It's the best community I'm personally engaged with. And I look forward to every one of their events. And every time I go, I have to bring a notebook because I end up writing down like five vendors who have some sort of SaaS solution that I need to go and explore because it's addressing a specific pain that I have. And I trust the people across the table who aren't salespeople who are selling it. That's what's happening with Modern Sales. And the best companies out there, they've understood that if they can create opportunities to cultivate a community of practitioners around their platform or their product, they can create opportunities for their customers to sell to their prospects and not do it in a contrived way where you're on some reference call where the other person is clearly coached. I think that's why I got so excited about ending up at Bevy because we are actually the platform that underpins the in-person communities of all those companies. I think what's really, really interesting is there's a lot of sort of reciprocal downstream effects of this changing and shifting buying environment. Like if people spend the least amount of time, 17%, according to Gartner, in a typical B2B buying process with your sales team, you need to enable them to be absolutely on it all the time. If people are researching online, go and focus on what kind of research people actually trust. You know, if people are spending a lot of time meeting with the buying group, make sure you're actually equipping them with the tools to sell internally. And frankly, actually don't trust that they can do it. And then on the last piece, like if they're spending more time meeting with your customers in person, own that. I know that one of our competitors has people that they either pay directly or, you know, have as advisory board members. So have have financial interest through stock who will, you know, sort of jump on threads and promote the competitor. What can one do to either A, prevent that as a leader of a community or B, be aware of that as a buyer so that you don't get that undue influence that we now recognize in the B2C world? I focus on the in-person events because I, as a sales leader, don't actually have the time to get on a forum all the time and ask questions and answer and give feedback. And, and while I'm not proud of that fact, that's just the reality for me. I also inherently am skeptical and distrust people who answer stuff on like Quora and on forums. So maybe that's me. I think there's a lot of value in online forums, by the way, especially for enterprise companies that are looking to do like service and support at scale. 
But I look at community and in-person community is far more powerful because you, you can't really sort of face to face with someone. It's really hard to hide your intent. And I think to answer your question, like, how do you prevent that? You know, modern sales pros is a neutral community that's focused on sales and operations leaders. There's a massive opportunity for a sales loft to go and create a community of like-minded practitioners itself. The reality is the only thing that's kept people from going all in on in person is that they've taken like a field marketing approach to it, which is good to an extent and important. You still got to do it, but also they haven't had the data. And that's the second piece. Like once you have a revenue efficient sort of franchise model and all the data to do it, then you can actually substantiate the impact. And once you bring in the in-person data, like it can drive sort of orders of magnitude change. And part of the reason I ended up at this company is the number one lead source by revenue was our API workshops at MuleSoft, period. And we knew that. I can see why something like an API workshop would work, right? Because people are actually learning and getting value above and beyond that they can take back to their desk, whether or not they were to have bought MuleSoft or not, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for your time. As I suspected, we would have a very broad-ranging conversation. If people want to learn a little bit more about Bevy or about you, what's the best way to find out? Bevy can be found at bevylabs, B-E-V-Y labs.com. And you can look me up on LinkedIn or Twitter. It's Stephen, B-R-O-U-D-Y. And I'll look forward to hearing from everyone. And thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, thank you. It was a blast. I look forward to catching up with you soon. And I'm sure I'll see you in a Hawaiian shirt. Absolutely. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.